Hey there, welcome to night school. You know, I've been reading a lot about dogs the last few months because I want to understand this little creature who's in my life now. And, you know, like every single story about pets or animals, there's always that theme of, you know, we wanted to understand uh, our, our animal, but we really, we wanted to learn about this little animal, but we really ended up learning about ourselves. It's kind of the, every story that's about a, a human's relationship to a pet or an animal is always this story of self-discovery. And of course, I'm kind of making fun of that, but it's also true, and I'm experiencing that. Turns out you can do all those things. Uh, but I'm reading a lot about dogs right now, and something I read this morning is that when a dog, and this might be true for other animals, but it's especially true for pack animals and in this case I'm I I don't know I don't know if, I don't know about other pack animals but it's true for dogs and when a dog is fixated too much on his own shadow who's if a dog is literally just staring at his own shadow and fixated on it for too long or too often other dogs will attack him <laughs> and it's a sign of being unbalanced if a dog is too fixated on his own shadow and I saw photos of this. I saw photos of a larger dog staring down at his own shadow, and a little dog was watching him. And then the next photo, the little dog was going at him. And not, not to hurt him, not to kill him, just to correct him, as they say. But I love that because it's, it's Jungian dog psychology, you know? It's the Jungian shadow among dogs, and... You know, acknowledge your own shadow, be aware of your own shadow, but don't just immerse yourself in it. Don't get lost in your own shadow. So, you know, on this primal level, dogs see that and they're like, something is wrong with that pack member. That pack member who is just lost gazing into his own shadow. We got to do something about that. And this little dog thought that, you know, about this larger dog. Uh, and yeah, it's just you can just get immediately Jungian about it, and it, it plays out on a human level too. Uh, when, you know, you see that when somebody is just way too immersed in their dark side, because you know, with the Jungian shadow, I mean, you know, you can go all kinds of different directions with that idea, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert in you know Jungian psychology, but I, I've long been a fan of Carl Jung's ideas. But even just through my own personal experience, getting away from these names and, and, you know, definitions and all of that, just my own experience. It's like when you immerse yourself too much in your own shadow and you start to cherish that and get attached to that, and even if you don't realize you're doing that, but you just immerse yourself in that and that kind of becomes your focus, is your dark side. And... Uh, you know, you're fixated on your own shadow. And you see that with people who have, you know, certain uh, ailments, mental ailments. I mean, it's something I've commented on here a lot about, but, you know, people who have anxiety and depression, which can be very serious, but they also are sort of, uh, they can, they're often a lighter version of other potential mental ailments. You know, they're not, not that these things have to be in competition with each other, but it's like depression and anxiety. They're not schizophrenia. They're not necessarily, you know, bipolarity. 
they're not necessarily borderline these things that can really deeply impact your life in a way that you can't easily correct and and the same is true for depression and anxiety but to say they are lighter than those other things you know i don't think that's too controversial at least it shouldn't be but i have commented on here about how people kind of immerse themselves in those things they become defined by those it seems to be something that goes from well, it's sort of like the, the stigma discussion, where I, I think it's great that people can be more vocal about those things now. And I don't even know how much of that is true. That, it, that I don't even know how much of the stigma is or was true. I know there is stigma against admitting your your faults and the things that you struggle with, especially mentally. But I guess I've never really witnessed... I've never really witnessed anybody be attacked for those things in my lifetime. And maybe it's, it goes on more often than I realize. Maybe it's like bullying where it's just just because I didn't see a lot of bullying growing up, like pure classic bullying. I just didn't see that. I didn't experience that. I saw kids give each other a hard time and maybe some kids took it harder. But, you know, because I didn't see just classic bullying all the time, you know, maybe I haven't seen this stigma against relatively mild mental ailments like depression and anxiety. Uh, and, and maybe part of it, too, is just that people who have those things can be difficult to be around. I know when I've been particularly anxious or depressed, like when I'm very anxious, I'm in almost a manic state. And my mind is, and I almost find this, I don't want to say joy because it's not pleasurable, but I almost like, I, I deal with anxiety by just going full force into it. And as a result, I can just go off to whoever I'm talking to. And I know that the way they respond to that can kind of feel like they have an aversion to my anxiety or they are somehow stigmatizing my anxiety, when the reality is they're just uncomfortable or they're annoyed. And it's not about them stigmatizing my anxiety. It's about what my anxiety or the manic state that it produces is doing to them. And so it really doesn't have a lot to do with me, except for the fact that I just I somehow don't have the self-control or my energy. Simply my energy. I mean, that's one of the things I'm reading about with dogs is where, you know, dogs are able to detect your energy. And that's why as a dog owner, you know, you teach your dog discipline. You know, yeah, you can train them to do things, but a large part of teaching your dog discipline is simply the way that you behave. It's faking it till you make it. It's behaving like somebody who a dog would want to listen to who it knows it has to listen to. So there is sort of an energy to it. And when, when you are anxious or you are depressed, you know, you can, you can kind of communicate an energy that makes people uncomfortable. And if that comes across as stigma or if people's discomfort comes out as criticism, well, you know, that's their own thing to, to deal with. Um, but, uh, but anyway, like, you know, just the idea of being fixated on your own shadow in the Jungian sense, and that's just so common, and I went through a long phase of that. 
you know, probably started when I was, it probably really started when I was a teenager and continued until I was about 30 or 31. And it just seemed to get worse. It just seemed to get worse. Uh, and nobody, but the thing is, is that nobody, there was no smaller dog who nipped at me. I just started to notice that, you know, it was affecting friendships, it was affecting relationships, but more importantly, <laughs> it was affecting, you know, just my own connection to the world. Because, yeah, your shadow's there and you have to acknowledge it. And doing that can actually be very rewarding, creatively, philosophically. I mean, I feel like you have to go through some amount of shadow fixation, what some people would call the dark night of the soul, whether it's something you willingly do or something that just circumstances just create. It's something that, you know, for me, it just, it kind of going down that road is what allowed me to go up a different road. And it's all the same road, but it allowed me to go up the hill once the incline, once that road started to, you know, get an incline. Uh, but I had to go down first. It's catabasis, anabasis. It's all of those ideas. And it's, you know, not a coincidence that many different cultures, many different practices, many different philosophies, that dogs, it's, it's not a coincidence that, you know, all of these different creatures and all of these different ideas parallel, if not, you know, synonymize each other. I don't know if that's a word. Synonymized. Going to get real synonymized here. I'm the synonymizer. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that a lot of different people have ways of explaining this. Or, that, or even just that as an end goal, that a lot of different belief systems have something that sort of, you know, that sort of explains that, you know, you can end up in this abyss, in this hell, if you go down a certain path and don't correct yourself. And the same thing goes for, you know, some, something sort of heavenly, some sort of bliss, at the very least, some sort of equanimity. That if you do manage to, you know, get a discipline and, you know, not become immersed in your shadow, not become absorbed like that poor dog staring at his own shadow. But unlike a dog pack, I think in a human being, you really have to do it yourself. You know, you can't expect another member of your pack. You can't expect that bold, small dog to just nip at you. It's like, stop staring at your shadow. Stop staring at your shadow. You know, you, you can't expect that. And, and often it, it doesn't help anyway. Sometimes if you really respect somebody's opinion or you really love someone and you know they love you and they're going to be truthful, that can be helpful when they say, hey, you're off base. There's a level of trust there. But more often than not, you have to correct yourself if you're fixated on your shadow and you have to do it without just completely trying to banish your shadow which is impossible you can't banish your shadow from your life there might be moments where you don't see it but it's there and the funny thing about this dog example this dog who was fixated on his own shadow is 
I don't think I've seen Batty acknowledge his own shadow yet. I don't think I've seen... Rather, I haven't seen him fixate on it. Based on his... He's so aware of everything that I think he's seen his shadow. He knows it's there. But he's not one of these dogs who just has his head down staring at his own shadow. I've seen him look at himself in the mirror, but he doesn't care. Like, kind of like a cat. That always that was always interesting to me with cats is they never seem to see themselves in the mirror. Or if they did, it had no meaning to them, which is very interesting. They can look at themselves in this mirror, but it has no impact or meaning. And I know there are examples of animals who do look at themselves in the mirror. Uh, but just my... Many, my entire lifetime of having cats and now a dog, it's interesting that they don't care about their own image in the mirror. But uh, going back to this idea of the human side of it, you know, because we, we care about the mirror. I mean, even if it's not a mirror, we just seeing our, our own reflection anywhere. I mean, we are reflection-oriented creatures where it's not just this mirror that we look at to get ourselves ready to go out into the world or to brush our teeth. And we also, we really want to see ourselves doing these things. Like you want to look at yourself in the mirror while you're lifting weights so that you have the form right. And you want to brush your teeth while looking in the mirror so that you, I guess, have your form right too, so that you know you're doing it right. Even though you don't really need it to guide you. Even though you can, you know what you're doing with your hand, you can feel it. Kind of the same thing with lifting weights, where like I can feel if I'm using the right muscles in the right way to get the result that I want. And I'm no expert, but I can just intuitively feel that, especially if I focus on it. Yet, I feel like I can't do it without the mirror. I don't feel like I can lift weights, especially dumbbells, without looking in the mirror. I just, I need it as sort of a guide. I need my reflection. Same with brushing my teeth. I feel weird if I can't look in the mirror when I brush my teeth. But it's not just that. We go out into the world and, you know, I readily admit that I look at my reflection when I pass by store windows, when I pass by cars. I don't, I'm not obsessed with it. And it's not that I'm trying to, like, make sure I look good. It's not, it, you know, there's some degree of vanity to it. But there, it's more so, it, for me, it's almost like this confirmation that you exist. It's, it's almost like a, it's, there's something almost existential about it, where it's almost more like, I'm just checking to make sure that I'm here. I'm passing by this store window, and it's, it's kind of interesting to see myself in the world, just walking down the street. There's an element of it that, that's that. You know, I don't stop and, like, look at my hair. Um, maybe sometimes I stop and I'll like flex a muscle. No, I, I, all, every time that I look at myself out in the world, it's always just myself moving. It's always just like a glance at myself to see myself walking. It's just this, like I said, we are reflection oriented people. And it's not that I need to see my reflection to know that I'm walking, but there's just, I have this impulse to do that. And it's, and you know, we take photographs, which are a, a reflection as well. You know, the photographs aren't entirely different from a mirror, and the way that people use their smartphones these days is very much like a mirror. They will use the actual camera. They will use, like, the selfie point of view 
that selfie POV, they'll use that to do their hair. You'll see women putting their makeup on doing that, and they'll take actual photos of themselves just to see what they look like. So, you know, photo- photography itself is a form of that reflection. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong. I don't, you know, you don't have to demonize people for being nar- a little bit narcissistic. You know, that's that's one of those weird things that's come about the last few years. People do it with Donald Trump. They do it with just about everybody. It's like everybody at the same time seems to have learned about narcissism and become some sort of you know armchair psychologist about it where I just in pop culture, in just in, with just people, even people I know, it seems like everybody is diagnosing everybody with narcissism. And then you'll get some psychologist. I'll, I'll listen to an interview with a psychologist who's like, "Well, I think we live in these times where we've become increasingly narcissistic," and it just seems to be this observation that everybody has. And you know, there's there's a degree of truth to it, but I don't think that the impulse is really any different just the tools. I don't think humans have changed as much as we believe they've changed. I think that we've gotten many new ideas. We are less brutal on the whole, but you can see right now where it's a slippery slope back to brutality and around the world too. It's like we tend to look at, you know, the Western world and we look at countries that are not in civil war And we tend to think like, oh, we've come a long way. And then you think about what's going on in some third world country where people are destroying each other and living under very harsh conditions. And it's like, well, you know, that's closer to the way things were. So it's not that we've come that far. It's just that we have opportunities to keep that at bay. And I I think we always have to take those. I think... There's no excuse for violence. And, uh, you know, people who are justifying violence in the name of love right now, you know, at the end of the day, all these words mean nothing. They mean a lot. I care about words. But at the end of the day, you know, it's an approach that I've tried to take to this stuff is if you didn't speak English and you... I mean, it goes back to energy, and you could only respond to the energy that someone is putting off, and you could assign that energy words, you know, you'd say, these people are being hateful. You would say, these people are being hateful. I don't know what they're saying, but I know what that energy is, and I know where that energy goes especially when it's not self-corrected. So it again gets back to this self-correction. And I guess just to go in a completely different direction, that's one of my biggest concerns right now is people who have un- have gone through this recent re-education and they believe that nobody could possibly exist in a different frame of mind than the one they just read about in a book. And if somebody isn't saying the same things that they just learned, that that person must somehow be in denial of those things, or their interpretation must be somehow distorted, destructive. 
You know, uh, it's, it's it's just a it's a strange thing. There's this tendency to there's so much projection going on to get psych 101 about it. There's so much projection, and there's this assumption that because I read this book and now I have this internalized guilt, and I need to lash out against the things that I think I am guilty of in addition to the society that made me guilty through my complicity, complicitness, whatever the word is, complicity, that's my daughter's name. I get confused. <laughs> Maybe that is the right word. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this idea, though, that it's like, because I learned this recently and I've internalized it this way, I'm right. I'm right. And if you don't follow my exact train of thought, you must not understand it. You must not know what what I've learned. And you, in turn, must be re-educated. And let me say this. None of the conversations going on right now, and this isn't me being a know-it-all, none of the conversations right now are remotely new to me. None of the discussions of history, none of the the sort of sociological criticisms that are going on, none of those are remotely new to me. I studied, you know, sociology, social psychology at a extreme far left liberal arts college, Evergreen, which was made more famous or infamous a few years ago because what's playing out now on a larger societal level played out at that school. And I, I had gone there, you know, a decade earlier, but still, the school didn't change that much. And so in studying the humanities at a radically far-left college, and even though that doesn't describe me, I'm very familiar with many of the conversations that are going on, and they're not new, nor are they new to me. And I've also had a long time to think about them. And I also don't have any conclusions, but I have had to, you know, through the, throughout that time, throughout that long time of knowing about those conversations external to me, I've also had to have internal conversations with myself. And a lot of that has had to do with my own fixation on my own shadow, not about the looming shadows that buildings cast and statues cast, but looking at my own issues. And then, you know, when I used to lash out more or, or feel the urge at the very le least, you know, it's not that I, I think that I lashed out that much when I was younger, but it was like I felt the urge more. And because I felt the urge to lash out but didn't lash out, it came out in all sorts of twisted ways. But I, you know, I came to the conclusion, and as many people have, it doesn't make me somehow, I'm not a genius here. You know, this is something that a lot of people have figured out over eons. Whatever that, what's an eon anyway? Um, a long time. When I say an eon, I mean a very long time. When I say an eon, I ain't trying to measure time. I'm just saying it's a long time. But it's something that people have figured out for eons that, okay... You know, you can't correct the things external to you. You can do your best to, you know, you can express yourself. You can speak up for what you think is right. But you can't ever have the expectation 
of correcting the world around you. But you can expect to correct yourself. And that's what, you know, Carl Jung spoke, you know, particularly poignantly about when he brought up the shadow and the process of individuation. And it's not like I followed Carl Jung's A through Z, you know, lessons on how to correct yourself or that I even, you know, it was just just another part of the puzzle. Reading Jung was just another part of the puzzle, not some sort of intensive Jungian psychotherapy process. Um, but uh, it, it, I just felt that he explained these things very well, and they, and his spiritual sensibility was a fantastic part of that. And it's also one reason why some people are skeptical of him, because Carl Jung was a mystic. But that's also one of the appeals of it for me, and I feel like you kind of need a mystical sensibility with these things. I wouldn't say you have to have it, Plenty of people manage to have gotten by without mystical experiences or acknowledging those mystical experiences. Because I'm when someone is very anti-mystical, but they have their shit together. There's a part of me that almost wonders. It's like, you know, just because you you haven't acknowledged the mystical experience, doesn't mean you haven't had one. And however you want to define those is fine. But that's just kind of how I see it. And I would never try to tell anybody else, you know, what their experience is or how they should interpret it. But one thing that I like about Jung is that, you know, he did, you know, he was one of these godfathers of modern psychology, but it bridged a gap with the spiritual and religious world through his, you know, open acknowledgement of mysticism and his relationship to that. And it comes through. There's some people where it just comes through. It's almost like a when you love a certain guitar riff and you just think, wow, someone came up with that. But they didn't come up with that just by you know, completing an equation. Something came through them. And you know, with Carl Jung, I think it's the same thing, where it's just sometimes you get this feeling where it's like, this isn't a guy who just you know, labored over the sciences all the time. He, he didn't just sit there. I mean, he did that. But it's not, this isn't all he did. There are certain points where you feel like, okay, something was coming through Carl Jung. And I think that's what the process of individuation feels like. And that's what it feels like when you do start to correct your own fixations, your own shadowy fixations. It does start to feel like more like something's coming through you. You're not necessarily following a step-by-step process, although there are signposts, there are handrails, there are guides it just tends to feel like something is coming through you. And in that way, it's not as egotistical or narcissistic of a process as you would think it would be to think, oh, I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to focus on myself. You know, it, it just it doesn't end up being... I mean, it, it feels narcissistic and egotistical to talk about it after the fact. It's sort of like the example I always use of an ego death, where... You can experience an ego death, but the second that you realize you've had an ego death, that means your ego has ballooned back up, maybe even bigger, probably even bigger than it was before the ego death. The second you know that you've had an ego death is the second your ego gets blown right back up huge. 
And so talking about something like the process of individuation or, or you know, getting untangling yourself from your shadow a bit and not and realizing that yeah it's always there um but uh i think the scary thing about your shadow to get a little metaphorical with it is that you don't see it when you are surrounded by darkness what allows you to see your shadow that your shadow is a part of you that it responds to your bodily movements, that it reflects you in some way. It's a, it's a silhouetted reflection. But what allows you to see it is when light is shining on you. And you know it's there, but there's a clarity. You can see the distinction, and you know it's not the whole of you. But what's scary... You know, and I mean this in a purely metaphorical sense, is that when you are really on a dark path in your life and you are tangled up with your shadow, you often can't see your shadow because everything else around you is dark because you don't really have a light source, either because you've, you know, life has just you know, done a, a bad number on you or you've deliberately moved away from it. Whether you, whether you know that you deliberately did it or not, you still made decisions. It's like the example I use of, you know, not that I think this is like necessarily your shadow, but it's it's like the example I use of like going to the cupboard and getting more chips or eating another donut. That itself is, you know, it's a decision, but it doesn't feel like it because you don't really feel like you're in control because you're that pleasure-seeking part of your brain wants that thing. Oh, I ate two donuts already. I, I really, I need a third. You know, that thing that's happening is still a decision. You don't have the discipline, maybe, or you have this weird malignant form of discipline. Because you think about, you know, constructive discipline, which is like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift these weights. I'm going to lift this weight 10 times. Or I'm going to eat a meal every three hours, and I'm going to make sure that I don't eat three or four hours before bed. You know, there, there's that discipline of that. But you could also say it's a certain form of discipline every time. Every time I get up, I'm going to walk over to the cupboard. While I'm binge-watching, every time I get up to go to the bathroom, I'm also going to go get something out of the cupboard and eat it. That itself is a form of discipline, but it's just, it's sort of a destructive discipline. But when you recognize that that too is a discipline, you realize that you can have control over that. And I think that plays out with other negative decisions in your life. Where you realize, oh, those negative things, they are a discipline too that I've committed myself to. But somehow I got the idea that it wasn't a discipline and I didn't have control over it. But I can you know, take that discipline and apply it to something else. I can simply n make the decision not to do that thing, not to grab another handful of chips every time I get up to go to the bathroom while I'm binge-watching, uh, you know, uh, whatever show you watch. I don't, I don't even know. I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you what somebody's watching right now. But it's just funny how that itself is a form of discipline. But it's the same thing, you know, with these shadowy impulses, these fixations you have where staring at your shadow. Let's go back to the dog. Let's go back to dogs here. The dog who is fixated on his own shadow. That's a discipline. That's a commitment. 
That dog is committed. He's he has a discipline that is that of a shadow starer. He's going to stare at that shadow. But it's a it's a I guess as the dog psychologist says, you know, it's it, it shows some kind of imbalance to the pack. And that's that's what gets communicated to you too. You know, that, that's what gets come out. Com- can't talk. Uh, it's what gets communicated to the people you know when you too are too immersed in your own shadow world. It no matter how many good things come out of that, no matter how much comes out creatively, no matter how much of a decent person you are, when people know that you are too immersed in that shadow world, they become repelled by it or concerned. They see it as a form of imbalance. And I guess that's sort of what happens. That's where some of the stigma comes from with mental health. When someone does say, hello, world, I'm depressed. I'm just I'm going to confess to everybody that I, I struggle with depression, too. And I'm glad we live in a world where people feel comfortable doing that. I think it's important to be able to communicate that. But you can see where that becomes an identity. And I've known people, I've dated people who their entire social circle is depressed. And they seem to use that as a form of currency. Not that it gets them anything, but it reinforces the group identity and also reinforces their individual identity. And to express that you're happy is almost a betrayal to this group because they're all negative and they're all depressed. So to actually say something good or to express that you are feeling good is almost a form of betrayal. And there's this attachment to that depression or that negativity. And uh, I've, I've watched this play out, and it's made me very uncomfortable to see it because you can't really say anything. Like in this, like Just like I was talking about with your own impulses, it's like you learn that you really can't correct other people. You can't change other people. And but when you see something like that, you want to say something, but you really can't because they somebody in that situation, it's just, you know, it's misery loves company. But as I like to say, misery doesn't love company. Misery hates company, but it invites it in anyway. And the last thing that that miserable company wants is somebody to say, you don't have to be miserable. You know, not to take anything away from your struggles mentally or in the wor- with the world around you, but it's, ju- it's just this thing where you, you can't point that out, really, unless you, you have a deep level of trust. But negativity destroys trust. It undermines trust. So it makes having a trusting discussion very difficult. So you just, you just end up uh, not being able to do anything. All you can do is correct yourself and hope that it sets an example to the people you care about, that it's possible to do that, even just temporarily. Because if you can do it temporarily, you can keep doing it. Even if you go back, even if you, even if you revert, you can still keep make a, make a game out of it, make a rhythm. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It's catabasis and anabasis. Sometimes you descend, but you also know that you can ascend again. It's like someone who relapses, realizing, okay, I relapsed, but that doesn't mean I can't quit again, because I did it before. 
And I think it's it plays out that way too, just psychologically, spiritually, where you realize, okay, I've kind of got, I'm in a little bit of a rut, but I know from previous experience that it's possible to get out of worse ruts than this. So if my life involves getting into ruts, climbing out, getting into ruts and climbing out, that seems like a better life than just staying in that rut all the time. And right now, I believe we are in a rut. I do love 2020, though. I love this year. I love all of the things that are coming out. You know, and suffering is going on all the time, and there seems to be more of it right now. At least people who previously were only mildly suffering seem to be suffering a lot more at the moment, and I don't celebrate that. But I celebrate the harsh spotlight that 2020 has shined because I don't feel like, I feel like a lot of people might be contending with their own shadows right now, but at least they are seeing their own shadows. And this describes a lot of people that I personally know, and I, I'm grateful to know. No matter what they're going through, no matter what their struggles are, I feel that something is illuminated around them. And even though their shadow is there and it might be something difficult to contend with, they are at least aware of it and they see the distinction. Whereas I think there's a certain group of people right now, a large group, a large and vocal group of people at this moment, and not on one end of the political spectrum or the other. I guess, you know, not on just one end of the political and social spectrum, but on the extremes on both sides, who are in a very dark room contending with their shadow. But they're lashing out at everything else because they can't see the distinct lines that separate their shadow from everything else. So what are they going to do? They're going to come at other people. They're in a dark room, and their their own shadow is ultimately the thing that they are contending with. But they're lashing out at other people's shadows. And they think, and I guess it comes back to, too, that what I was saying earlier, where what really bothers me about what the left is doing right now, just to, to pl- speak plainly, which I want to make an effort to do more of, but to speak plainly, what's really bothering me about the far left in particular is, again, this assumption that you haven't studied what they've studied And if you have, and you haven't come to the same conclusions, conclusions that have been forced on them and that they've taken in, but if you haven't accepted these forced conclusions, somehow you are are the culprit of everything that's wrong, and you need to be forcibly corrected. And that's just unacceptable. When I said recently, we can never accept this, that's what I'm talking about. We cannot accept that. I won't. And, you know, I fortunately haven't been in a situation recently that where I've, I've been forced to assert myself too much, aside from just speaking what I believe in on here. But people are possessed. And it, it is absolutely a cult-like way of thinking. It is cultish. Anytime anybody is convinced they are on the path to 
moral purity. And they reinforce that by telling you exactly what you think and exactly how you fit into the world around you. That's cultish. Well, I, well, I, I guess what makes that, that, that's just something people do, rather. You know, people who think, I know exactly what you think, and I know exactly how you fit into the bigger picture of this crazy life thing that we've all always been trying to figure out. What makes it cultish is when you say, I know the right way. I know the right way, and you have to listen to me, or I'm going to crush you. That's when it becomes cultish, is when you say that I have the path, and that's something I try to be very careful with. You know, I talk about self-improvement a lot. I talk about mental and spiritual health, physical health sometimes. And I would never say that I have the right path for anybody. It's why I always say preach what you need. Because I can only tell you what has worked for me. And it turns out that what has worked for me in finding some sort of balance and acceptance and, and astonishment toward this world, toward finding this larger love. What has worked for me, it turns out, has actually worked for many people over a long span of time. And so this isn't my little idea that I cooked up. You know, this isn't something I discovered. I discovered it in myself, but it turns out... It's paralleled, you know, throughout... This, these ideas are, you know, paralleled, if not synonymous, throughout history. People living today, people living in the past, and people will continue to have these same epiphanies and discoveries in the future. And when it comes to, you know, your own mental and spiritual health, It's a relief when you find out that other people have gone through the same process or have the same ideas. I was talking to my friend last night, and he made a comment about how somebody who we kind of don't like, not a person we know, but there's a person who's involved in some stuff, and we were just kind of not really ragging on this person, but just kind of having... just It was just real talk, as, as people say, real talk. Um, but, uh, and he, he was just like, oh yeah, this guy, he's, you know, he's, he's one of these people who's discovered religion. And then he, my friend Apollo, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Cause he knows that that's something I riff on now. I wouldn't say religion, but he knows that it's like one of my things is this, I do have this sort of devotion to something. But I wasn't offended by him saying that because, you know, yeah, there, I, and I guess what that comes from is that there's always that part of me that wants to be the explorer and the discoverer, the discoverer, the curator, the person who finds that obscure thing and is the only one who knows about it or is the person who can take credit for finding it, you know, the endless pursuit of jewels. There is always going to be that treasure hunter mentality in me that says, I want to find that thing that makes me feel unique in finding it. But I have the complete opposite feeling about spiritual health, where I feel that the more people who come to similar discoveries, it's exciting and it gives me people to talk to or to, you know, even if I don't know them, it gives me things to read. It gives me people to listen to. And, and so it's funny how 
my own materialism, and this just this does get into materialism versus you know the sort of immaterialism that spirituality brings out of you and teaches, for that matter. Where you know my interest in material things, which is still real, I still like things. I still like to listen to things and read things and look at things and come across things. I like, I, I, you know, even just objects, not even just things that, that you, not even just art and ideas, but I, there's objects. I still like to have objects in my house that I like, little trinkets. And I like them to be unique. I like them to be, I like them to feel like jewels. I like to feel that I've discovered something or that I have something that I can say is wholly mine. And that's my material side, is the side that says, I like things, and I like them to be as unique as they possibly can be, as long as they appeal to me. And part of the appeal of things to me is when they are unique. You know, there's a reason why people, when they're really rich, they get custom jewelry. They don't just go to the jewelry store and buy something mass-produced, even if it, even if it's made of the same components. But there's a reason why, you know, like rappers, for example, they'll get a, a necklace made with their own name. You know, we like to have, we like our material things to be unique. There's a reason why people will, you know, lust after records that are more limited than others. It's like, oh, this one's limited to 50 copies in this color or with this cover. And there's a reason for that because people like their material objects to be as unique as possible. It gives you more of a personal connection to it and it gives you a sense of pride because it makes you in turn feel special. And that's cool. I like feeling special. I also like it when I don't feel special. But you can feel special, you know, through the objects that you have in your life. But that only goes so far, at least for me. And what's strange is that my, fe- my material connections make me feel more special the more unique they are or the more obscure they are. And I initially kind of took that path with spirituality where I was like, okay, occultism, my own personal occultism. And the more esoteric and and difficult to understand that it is, the less universal it is, the more appealing it is to me. And it just reached a point where I was just like, that's not going to be what it is. That's not going to be how it works. And in finding ideas that were more universal, that were more shared... You know, there's a reason why in, in Buddhism, for example, propagation, and it's the same for every, most religions. Some have a rule against it, which is cool, too. And I don't believe necessarily in propagation, like in terms of, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to go door to door. I mean, you have Mormon missionaries, but I went to this Buddhist meeting, you know, late last year, and, you know, the group discussed, like, you know, propagate, they use the word propagation, which, you know, of course, ties into propaganda, but basically, we want to spread this. We believe that the—they said explicitly, this Buddhist group, uh, we believe explicitly that the more people who follow our school of Buddhism, the better, because that will make for a better, more liberated world. And uh, so they, they deliberately want to propagate, and that's built into so many religions. And, you know, it's obviously missionary work in the Christianities, in Christianity, 
but you know, missionary work is popular in that. Mormons go door to door. There's this idea that you want to spread these things. You want people to understand them. You want to teach your kids. If you're a religious person, you have this impulse to take your kids to church and make sure they understand what you understand, if you even understand it. You might just think it's the right thing to do, and you never really had an epiphany or a deep connection, but you just, it's something, you know, comfortable to you, I guess. But your kids might not understand, and often kids resent going to church because they haven't had a chance to go through catabasis and anabasis. They haven't had a chance to descend. They haven't had a chance to understand their own shadow and, you know, and to ascend out of that shadow world. They haven't learned the value of light. You know, so so often you have to go through that process on your own. But I understand why people want to share that, because you want more people to come to the same understanding that you do. But that's exactly what the left is doing right now with their secular ideas. And I'm glad everybody's pointing out that it's a religion, because it is. And not that some of the ideas aren't right. It's like the same thing with Christianity, where, you know, forceful Christianity is the antithesis of what spirituality should be to me, and we've seen the destructive impact that it's had. We've seen where, you know, crusades and this just this desire to spread the good word, the good word of God and Jesus Christ, we've seen where that can turn into something horrible. I mean, read about, you know, the... In, read about South Korea in the 1940s and 50s when... You know, Buddhist monasteries were hiring thugs to throw Molotov cocktails into other Buddhist monasteries who believed differently from them or who had different political leanings. That's that's real. Buddhist monks in South Korea were hiring thugs to throw Molotov cocktails into other Buddhist monasteries. I shit you not. So even Buddhism, the the Zen, you know, follow your bliss, our, our idea of it in the West, even they can do this. Even they are fully capable of that impulse, and they think they're right. But it doesn't mean the ideas that they are sharing are wrong. You know, just because Christianity has gotten a bad rap, and rightfully so, for the behavior of many of its followers in modern times, in the same way that Buddhist monks were hiring people to throw bombs into other monasteries, it doesn't mean that the ideas that they were talking about were wrong. Just because it became, just because they got twisted up in their interaction with the world and other people doesn't mean that their ideas were wrong. And that gets lost because people see just what certain Christians do. And they think, oh, because these people behave that way, the ideas must be just garbage. They must mean nothing. And it's not true at all. If we based all ideas off of the way that people behave, well, we wouldn't really have any ideas. We wouldn't be able to take any ideas seriously. And that's nihilism. And that might be why we are where we're at, where nihilism has taken hold. And uh, you see that, I mean, it's, I think it's, it ties back into what I was talking about, where I've known social groups where the group identity is based around this mental affliction, be it depression, anxiety, and everybody just talks about that all the time with no real attempt at relief, no earnest attempt to relieve that, because they all have kind of attached themselves to it. 
and they refuse to grow out of it. And it's difficult to grow out of it because it is something that, it, you know, it may be some sort of imbalance. It may be something genetic. And so I'm not saying it's easy to do that, but you have to at least see it as a possibility and a desirable possibility and not to use it as an excuse to lash out at everything else. You have to let the light define your shadow if you're going to understand what your shadow is and how it responds to your bodily movements. But maybe the dogs just have it better. That dog's staring at his own shadow too much. Let's go nip at him. Maybe the dogs know what's up. I've learned that. So maybe the story is just a... Turns out the animals know. It's not just what the an- what I learned from the animals. Or, or it's, not, it's not just uh, that I learned about the animals. It's what I learned about myself. It's like Milo and Otis. It's like every, every Disney movie about animals. It's like it wasn't just about learning about these animals on their adventure. It was us as the viewer learning about ourselves. But that is the goal. I mean, that is what I'm talking about. That is individuation. That is realizing what's going on inside of you and how that connects to these external things that you are taking in. But you got to let the light define your shadow if you're going to understand it at all. Because trying to understand your shadow while you're still in a tunnel or a dark room, well, everything is your shadow, so of course you're going to lash out at everything. And uh, with, uh, but but just, I got to get back to a point that I meant to get to a minute ago, just with that, you know, religion and spiritual idea. It's like, you know, while I do have this endless pursuit of unique little jewels in the material side of my life, and I don't necessarily believe in propagating my beliefs or getting everybody on the same spiritual page as me. I'm delighted when I find that somebody is. Even if they believe something else, just being able to find that parallel. And so with spirituality, I don't feel protective. I don't feel defensive. I don't feel like it's a jewel that I need to cup in my hands that only I can look at. And if I do let somebody else look at it, well, they better know that I'm the hand that's holding it you better know that I'm the hand that's holding this spiritual jewel. You learned, you oh, you heard about it from me. Like when you tell a friend about a band and then that, that becomes their favorite band, that part of you that's like, well, you heard about them from me. I don't feel that way at all about spiritual ideas. I think because it does feel like it's coming inward, but it doesn't feel like it's wholly mine. I don't feel like it's mine that I'm holding. Again, it's something that's coming through you. And just because it's coming through you doesn't mean that it's yours. And it makes you want to connect with people. It makes you want to find that common ground. Because you start to realize that it's not that I'm looking for some unique little philosophy. You know, simply experiencing that, you know, that connection makes you realize that what's unique about that spiritual connection is this whole thing. You start to realize this whole thing is so unique. This whole thing that I'm just one part of is so damn unique. It's not damned. i got to stop saying that. But this whole thing is so darn unique 
that why would I think that I need to cup a small part of that in my hands and say that it's mine? Whether or not I need to spread it or propagate it, whatever I believe in doesn't even have a name. And if I were to try to put a name on it, it would just be a placeholder. But I know that it's not mine alone, even though I feel it completely on this individual level. But it also connects me as an individual to everything. And why would I be possessive about that? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So tell.